Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. Welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast. I know I'm not the voice you're used to hearing on the Brain Mastery Podcast, but we decided to give Mark a well-deserved day off. My name is Michelle Tashro, and I'm the Director of Customer Experience at ABI Wellness. In my role, I am privileged to work with clinicians and healthcare experts who implement the BEARS program. However, I am also blessed from time to time to speak with individuals who have participated in the BEARS program. Today, I would like to welcome one of these participants, Alex Noble, as our guest. Alex is nothing short of remarkable in my view. She is recovering from MSIDS, multiple systemic disease syndrome due to mold exposure and Lyme disease, which has affected her ability to work as a policy analyst. During recovery, Alex also sustained a concussion and two bouts of COVID. Her journey has highlighted the importance of self-advocacy and rediscovering self-identity after brain injury or illness affecting the brain. Welcome, Alex. Was there anything you wanted to add? No, I think that's it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. I, I also noticed on your bio that you're a very, very physically active individual. You love your sports. And one of the things that caught me was winter biking. Can you explain what winter biking is? <laughs> it's biking in winter. <laughs> I mean, I will say that before I sustained a brain injury through all of this, I, I was a fair weather exerciser. But um, going through this process, I realized exercise has really become so important uh, as part of my recovery. And so I got into biking. And then when winter came, I was a little bit concerned about not having that outlet to exercise. And so I took the plunge and I, I got myself a winter bike last winter and I haven't looked back. It's, uh, it's been surprising. I, I've really taken to it. So it's pretty much just biking in winter, but use a different bike. I have a bike that has um, studs on it. So it allowed me to continue getting in that good exercise that, that has been so valuable to me throughout this. Oh, good for you. I am a fair weather exerciser. So, you know, I commend you for getting out there in the winter, mainly in the snowy, snowy months. So I first met Alex on a phone call when she reached out to me searching for a treatment to help her return to work. At that time, Alex, you had been involved in multiple treatments already, but you were still struggling with some cognitive dysfunctions. What stood out for me during that call was your determination to heal and your self-advocacy, you were really taking control of your, your treatment plan. Could you discuss a bit more about your story and how self-advocacy has steered your recovery? Yeah, in my experience, it's been essential for me. So I became sick, full-on systemically sick, just as the pandemic was starting. So about February, March 2020. And I was having a whole host of crazy symptoms. I was in and out of emergency 25 times in a span of three months. And I went from somebody that was physically healthy to requiring 24-7 personal support care within two months. I was crawling on the floor. I was having some really 
scary symptoms that were largely neuromuscular and neurological in nature. And so I didn't have any answers at that time. And unfortunately, um, the doctors that I reached out to really didn't have answers for me as well. Um, so it was a very scary and confusing time. And so self-advocacy was necessary early on. Some of the, the attitudes that I, I got from certain practitioners was just to kind of, you know, take some out of it and go home and accept that you have a chronic illness and stop looking for answers. And unfortunately, that wasn't an option for me, or fortunately, that wasn't an option for me. And I knew I had to find out why I was experiencing all of this. And so, yeah, self, self-advocacy is, has definitely been essential. And I know it is for a lot of people who are, are dealing with an illness that the medical community doesn't really fully understand or that's a little bit under the radar. Mm-hmm. I think you pointed to something very important there as well, as you said, that they just wanted you to accept your chronic illness. Um, and, you know, this is something that we see in brain injury recovery a lot that, you know, the status quo is just to kind of get you so that you're functioning, you know, but not having a, a high degree of quality of life, you know, and that's left for these individuals and many individuals don't have the capacity that that you do, you know, to self-advocate. And I know with, with you, I mean, what you've gone through has been substantial and how you you maintained yourself enough to to self-advocate is remarkable. How many different treatments and, and programs did you try and did you go through during this journey? I wouldn't even know how to count. I have tried so many different things, so many different modalities, you know, both in terms of traditional medicine as well as outside of that in, in terms of complementary therapies. I've also had different ways or searched for different ways of looking at illness. So I've tried many different angles. You know, for example, I've tried neurofeedback. I've tried traditional, you know, antibiotic therapy for, for my Lyme disease. I've tried different lifestyle changes like sauna, food, being very aware of that. I've tried, and I don't remember what the acronym starts with or what it stands for, but it's FSM. So it's using sound frequencies. Mm -hmm. There's a whole host of things that, you know, that I haven't said, but yeah, I've tried many different things in terms of, you know, seeing what would, what would work and what would fit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you were saying too, that this self-advocacy was, was developed out of a need, right? What gaps do you think prevented you from your recovery? Because obviously you've gone through several different modalities, like you mentioned, but there were still gaps in treatment along the way, whether it was treatment that you sought out yourself or, or treatment that your healthcare providers discussed with you. So what gaps do you think prevented your recovery or prevented you from having a faster recovery? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many. And that's why, you know, there's so many barriers to access to comprehensive health care. So everything from diagnosis, proper diagnosis, including testing, as well as treatment and treatment options, and also community adjunct supports while you're going through something like this. There's so many gaps. And and that's why people, it's very easy um, to fall through the cracks and to have to self-advocate for yourself so rigorously at a time when you're probably feeling at your weakest. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So it is a, a double-edged sword. <laughs> you know, you're 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 trying to relax and rest and and to recover, but a lot of your time is necessarily spent on self-advocacy. Um, so much so that that can also impede your recovery, just because you're so overburdened and overfunctioning to account for the gaps that are in our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In regards to community support, did you have any any type of community support or family support during this journey? Unfortunately, I didn't. And, you know, it was unfortunate that this happened just as the pandemic was starting. So that added a layer of complexity. And so, you know, the community supports, I find, you know, oftentimes I had to pay for things out of pocket. So as I mentioned very early on, I needed personal support workers and that had to be covered by me at a a great cost. Unfortunately, a lot of the community supports that are out there are first limited. And the algorithms for who's eligible for them is can be very limited. So it's very focused on activities of daily living and for maybe something that's more acute. Um, mm-hmm. But for, you know, for example, if you're dealing with something that's um, executive functioning, trying to find community supports for that, I mean, it's nearly impossible. And simple things like filling out a form to even have access <laughs> to community supports. And to navigate relationships during a time when your cognitive functioning is not so great. Just these really practical things that we take for granted. Once that's gone, really can affect uh, your everyday life, your ability to work, your ability to function. But their algorithms don't really, you know, take that into account. And so finding those type of supports is nearly impossible. So I had to be really creative in looking support for supports. And, and oftentimes, as I said, I had to pay for it out of pocket. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry to hear that. That is definitely a challenge. And, and you did mention, too, you know, the barriers to diagnosis and treatment along with that community support. And, you know, that's, that's a wide range of uh, a, a large network to have to work with, right? You know, they don't all communicate well together, unfortunately, because it is such a, such a huge network. What, what barriers did you find with your diagnosis? Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like there are certain illnesses, so like Lyme disease and exposure to mold, you know, in your environment, environmental toxins. Um, there's really not a great understanding in uh, the medical community as to those effects and, you know, diagnosing that and treating that. So oftentimes people are often forced outside of the covered medical system to look for answers. And that was definitely my experience. I had to eventually pay for testing that confirmed my Lyme diagnosis, as well as all of the other things that I was dealing with. And and I know even going through concussion, it's the same thing. A lot of the supports that are available, you usually have to pay for them out of pocket because you know, any provincial supports are, are limited, focused on a, a very narrow range of, of uh, different types of brain injury, and there's long waiting times. So oftentimes for things like this, you know, if you want to get treatment, you are forced to pay um, out of pocket and to look for practitioners that can, can help you. Mm-hmm. And it's just poorly understood. So, you know, going through that process 
one can actually get a little bit of trauma in dealing with the medical system because I think there can be a propensity sometimes to, you know, if if you're not if your symptoms are not being understood, to to have that labeled as somatic or you know depression. I, I think mm-hmm. there's certain narratives that, especially with brain injury, anything to do with cognition, that seems to be a common narrative. If you're having difficulty, that depression or anxiety is usually, you know, might be the first diagnosis that you receive if, if uh, a practitioner is not fully understanding what's happening. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and I think that's an important point there as well. And we, we know that, um, you know, how can you not be depressed or anxious when your cognitive functioning isn't isn't working as it should, you know, when you've when you've sustained a concussion and, and you can't think clearly anymore, you're not feeling like yourself. So it's, it's very evident that you would be feeling depressed and anxious, um, but it shouldn't be the primary diagnosis. Yes, I agree. It can cause a lot of suffering for people uh, needlessly by, yeah. by, by having that as the default. And yes, it can lead to years of people chasing certain treatments that aren't really helping them heal. And I think looking for root causes is something that, you know, there's a gap in our system in terms mm-hmm. of looking for root causes and really practical things, you know, that I, I sometimes feel that our system doesn't focus on in terms of, you know, where do you live, for example, where do you work, you know, what are some potential environmental impacts, you know, just the simple act of observing somebody. I've had the uncomfortable, you know, experience several times of being in a doctor's office and and actually not having a doctor actually look at me, but looking at a test and saying, well, you know, your labs are fine. And, you know, I'd be falling apart and crying you know, especially with brain injury, sometimes it can be an invisible uh, mm-hmm. disability and it's not something that's very apparent. So, you know, sometimes a practitioner will say things like, well, you look fine, yeah. but you know that there's something wrong. And so it, it's very, um, sometimes you can feel a little bit gaslit uh, when you're trying to look for answers and it makes you question yourself as well. There's a lot of confusion that can happen in the beginning. Absolutely. You know, mainly when you know something is wrong with you, you know that, you know, you're not the same person you were, and you don't know why. You know that you're not making these things up. It's not in your head and not to be taken seriously, not to be listened to. You know, it's, it is very detrimental to your mental health, right? And to how you think and feel about yourself. And Talking along this pathway, I I wanted to jump into a previous discussion that you and I had had in the past, uh, where you just made such a wonderful statement about rediscovering your self-identity. So after you received your, um, your diagnosis and you started on some treatments, and from my understanding, your treatments were more self-directed versus through the healthcare system. Is that correct? Am I correct in saying that? Yes. All of my, all of my treatment has been self-directed. In the beginning, my doctor wasn't happy about that. And she actually tried to divorce me (laughs) because, um, you know, as somebody that was dealing with something chronic, you know, you take a lot of effort. And when somebody doesn't have answers for you, I can understand it could be frustrating, but She's seen the um, recovery that I've made. And so she's actually become an ally. And so Mm -hmm. she's 
So it's interesting to see that turnaround. But yes, my, my care has been self-directed. I'm very active in it. And, and what has been, been the largest parts of your recovery that have given you the greatest impact, would you say? Hmm. Is it, is it a combination of multitude of things, you know, interdisciplinary care? Um, are there certain treatments that stand out um, more than others? It's obviously an ongoing process still to this day, but um, can, you, can you suggest for our audience, um, you know, some of the treatments that have been beneficial to you and why? Mm-hmm. Well, I think for me, you know, I would say several things. And certain things, maybe more so than others. I think for me, having the understanding very early on that when you're dealing with something that's chronic and complex, um, that oftentimes there's not going to be a simple pat answer in terms of causes and treatments. So it's, you know, our system usually likes to look at a, you know, single vector of illness kind of model where, you know, there's a clear cause and effect. And when you become, that sick, usually it's kind of like a boiling pot thesis. It's, you know, there's a, a, a number of things that your body's dealing with until, you know, it can't deal anymore. And there might be something that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. So to speak. But there's a number of things that are happening. And so when you're looking at treatments, you, you have to start not thinking linearly, but more spherically and trying different things. So um, for me, I would say, I mean, number one, basic things, you know, getting things like eating and sleep and exercise, you know, apart from treatment, getting those really basic things regulated makes such a big, big difference. I mean, especially with brain stuff in terms of getting proper sleep, you know, where you get that sort of collation of, you know, all of the rewiring that's happening. It's so integral to have Mm -hmm. that exercise. As I mentioned, I really feel that has been a big part of my recovery very early on, I was so dizzy and weak, I could barely walk around the block. And I remember the first time I was resolved to to go walking by myself. Up to that point, I had a personal support worker that had to walk outside with me because I was so weak. She was afraid I would kind of veer into traffic on the road. But I remember um, strapping myself with an alarm bracelet and walking around the block. And it was such a victory just to walk around the block by myself. But I slowly just did that every day and just incrementally increased that. Eventually, I think it was uh, summer of 2020, I tried to get on a bike (laughs) and I wasn't sure how that was going to go because my balance was really bad, but I was able to bike just down to the corner and that was such a victory. And, And then I just slowly, slowly built it up until, you know, at this point I, I can easily bike for two to four hours. And I try to bike an hour every day. So for me, getting that movement in has been a big thing. I mean, getting fresh air, getting the blood pumping. I know as part of the Bears program, that's an essential component. And it really does make a difference in terms of getting that blood flow to the brain. I think the balance and the coordination really helps also in rewiring and getting the lymph moving and just a sense of getting outside, you know, especially in nature that has such a a big, big impact because especially, you know, with the pandemic where we've all felt a little bit like our worlds have become a little bit smaller. So just being able to get on a bike to go somewhere or just walking somewhere different is, is such a big thing. 
And it's so good for your mental health as well, right? Exactly. Yeah, I know individuals who exercise strictly every day for that reason, not necessarily for the physical uh, components of it, but for their mental health. Yeah, it's become an essential for me. It's it's a non-negotiable now to, to even just go for a 30-minute walk. It's my, it's my standard now because I, I've just seen so many miraculous things happen just from doing that. Another thing is, you know, I know that I've mentioned this before, is having positive, informed community. So very early on, it was very easy for me to feel isolated. Um, it's very hard, you know, your family members, sometimes the people that are closest to you, to you don't even under really, really understand what you're going through. And so finding a community of people that you can connect with at least once a week is just so essential. I think, you know, positive, they have to be positive. I think you have to be a little bit careful in ensuring that, you know, you don't want to hear, you don't want to be involved in a group where it's just a rehashing of horror stories. Mm -hmm. Um, But people that are really looking to heal and have a positive, you know, mindset, you can learn from other people. That's how I've basically learned to advocate for myself is, is hearing other people that have gone even just two steps ahead of me. Mm-hmm. And then helping me in kind of figuring out a path. That's community, right? Where you all belong. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, that the mirroring of the, the mirror neurons and, you know, seeing mm-hmm. and connecting with other people. I think that's just so important. And do you, do you think that this, this type of community has, has assisted you with uh, rediscovering your self-identity? I know that that's something that you had mentioned to me before. What is rediscovering your self-identity and how does somebody go about that? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not easy. Like I remember very early on, it is very painful when certain mm-hmm. things feel like they're being stripped away from you. So certain things that you were able to do, you're not no longer able to do. And those things might be part of your identity, you know? So for example, I very early on, I had a lot of uh, speech issues. I couldn't read and couldn't comprehend uh, written texts. I had to have somebody read to me. I wasn't as articulate, I had difficulty writing. And, you know, these are things that I identified as, you know, I, I used to feel like I was well read and I used to love to write and read and to feel that being stripped away was very very difficult and then my body was going through all these different changes like you know from one day to the next my body looked very different so it was a very confusing and uncertain time and you know your roles in your relation to other people change so you know you might have an identity in terms of the role that you play within your your family or different groups and and that can change because because of what's happening to you um so your identity really can feel like it's being stripped away and you know i i would ask myself who am i what's happening (laughs) and i think the first instinct when that happens is to control and so i think what i've learned you know and this is still an ongoing process for, for me i'm by no means an expert i think you learn to detach a little bit, um, that you are going through a transition and to know that it is not permanent. It feels like that when it's happening to you, that this is the new normal and this is going to be it forever. And you really have to 
be very mindful of the narrative that you're telling yourself that are really born out of fear and uncertainty um, because it is not permanent. It is a transition. And I guess like with any transition, whether it's illness, you know, divorce or anything that's kind of ground shaking, you're going to feel disoriented. But what happens, I think, is especially for me during the initial parts is that your world kind of feels like it's become suffocatingly small. <laughs> At least that's how I felt. And um, so during that time, I found taking pleasure in small things, you know, which I kind of feel like we've done a little bit, everybody to some extent with the pandemic, you know, when the world kind of closed in, what did we do? You know, everybody learns to bake bread or, you know, yes. walking in nature and doing these little simple pleasures. And I think when that happens, when you're going through that transition, to be mindful of them and to be grateful for them because they're kind of like little seeds. And it's like that saying, you know, by the yard, life is hard, inch by inch, it's a cinch. And I mm -hmm. think when you're going through something like this, it's just like, don't worry about looking at the yard, just take it inch by inch. That's a wonderful little saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so true. So true. Regarding your your rediscovering your self-identity, I know that you had mentioned that, you know, you congratulations, you're going to be returning to work, which is wonderful. So how has this reframed your self-identity as well? So, you know, that's the thing to realize is that when you're going through this, that it's not permanent. And so there are some things that will return, you know? So like I said, I couldn't read <laughs> two years ago. Now I'm able to slowly, you know, I very gradually got back into it, doing things like bears and, and other things, just again, taking advantage of that neuroplasticity that, you know, your, your brain is amazing. Your body is amazing. It has an innate wisdom. And, you know, I've been told this by certain doctors, if, if you give it the right conditions, yeah. your body knows how to heal. Your brain knows how to heal trying to figure out what is what is the right environment to provide your your body and your brain to do what they already know how to do but yeah it's not permanent so you know there will be a return of things so you know I, I am hoping to go back to work and planning on that and I'm able to you know I've regained my ability to read and I mean I just love you know reading and and doing these things that that I wasn't able to do but, you know, going through this process, you also, you also learn new things, I think, because for a time you're not able to do the things that you weren't able to do. You find other things that you can do. So, for example, a lot of people that I know that have kind of been going through a healing process, they return to trying things that they used to like to do as a kid. Mm -hmm. Whether that's things, you know, as painting or singing, you kind of reconnect to those core things that you as a person like to do and so sometimes it becomes a return to things that you know that you used to like to do and and that you put down for whatever reason and you just rediscover a joy in that and that the simple pleasures right exactly and you know and then there's new things like I mentioned like the winter biking I never would have <laughs> considered that I would ever be into winter biking but you know this path kind of led me to that and I think, you know, when you go through something like this and your identity is kind of in flux for a little bit, you really examine, well, what things you hooked your identity on, you know, what are the things that 
how you identify yourself, you really start to examine that. And yeah, you discover new things to do. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not an immediate process. I think a thing to consider too is that, you know, there's different ways to fall into this. I mean, you might have an accident, a car accident or a concussion where it's very immediate. You know, one day you're able to do something and the next it's, it's quite a shock to the system. And then you might also have a process where it's very gradual and very insidious and you, you're not quite sure what's happening to you, but you know that something is happening. And so this can also be very discombobulating in either, either way. But definitely in terms of regaining identity, it's, it's not a fast process and it's not linear. And I think one thing that I've learned is to hold any diagnosis that you receive lightly, to not identify with your illness or brain injury, that this is not who you are, that sometimes we use that to, you know, as a sense of utility, as a way to communicate our needs to other people. Mm -hmm. um, but that is, you know, that is something that you're dealing with it. It's a part of you. It's not the whole of you. And to be mindful of how you speak around that and how you speak to yourself and of yourself, um, to be very mindful of that. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of important um, when you're going through this is to hold that lightly. Yeah, that's really good advice. Is there any other advice that you are you would offer those who struggle with cognitive dysfunction? I mean, I, I know that setting your boundaries is really important as well, mainly with, with your community and with your families. And you had mentioned before, you know, these wonderful um, letters that you could provide to those individuals, letting them know, you know, this is what I'm going through and these are my boundaries and that. Um, these are my struggles. But what other advice could you could you offer those in need? Well, I, I think um, just to expand a little bit on that, that is a big thing as to how to signal and communicate your needs to others effectively. You know, I think there is a challenge and I definitely understand that when you're dealing with something that is largely invisible. You know, if you saw me on the street, you wouldn't necessarily think that I would have an illness or disability. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes that can, unfortunately, from loved ones, from medical practitioners, you might feel dismissed. Um, you might get labeled as a malingerer. Um, it can be very hurtful. And sometimes to compensate, we, we over-explain ourselves. And I think that can feel very uncomfortable for a lot of people, especially if you're the type of person, you know, that, you know, is very empathic and is oftentimes try to accommodate yourself to other people to all of a sudden have to advocate for yourself and to take up space and to signal to other people, well, these are my needs, you know? So as you'd mentioned, like there's a letter that sometimes you can write to family and friends to kind of clarify what you're going through. I think things that I found, you know, I had a partner that I was with at that time and it was very difficult for him to kind of listen to the things that I was going through. And so we had a a system where instead of, you know, explaining everything that was happening, I would, we would use red light, yellow light, green light. So if I was having a red light day, it just meant I need a little bit more attention, a little bit more care, or, you know, I might need a little bit of help, or is it green light or yellow light? And this was a very quick way to kind of communicate, you know, 
where mm-hmm. I was at without having to kind of go into detail. So just like little things like that, you know, right now I'm preparing to go back to the workplace. So the challenge for me is how do I, you know, communicate what my needs are um, and accommodations I might need. And I've gotten mm-hmm. some some suggestions from people that I never would have considered, but, you know, these are things you do have to consider. So for example, I had one person who suggested to me that to use a little wheelchair sign uh, right near my signature mm-hmm. just to communicate to other people who don't know me that, you know, there might have to be a discussion um, in terms of how best to work with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also had mediated discussions that help sometimes. I think that's something important if you're returning to the workplace, especially if you're not quite sure how to express what your needs are and your accommodations. And I think this could also be very helpful if you're in a marriage or you're partnered when you're going through something difficult like this and having a counselor that is informed about brain injury and, and illness to kind of help mediate that because yeah I think that is a big challenge is how to communicate to others what you're going through and what your needs are in a way that's loving. Did you access counseling? Were you fortunate enough to access that that help? I did. It took a while to find one just with the pandemic as you know everybody <laughs> a lot of uh, uh, counselors are just they have long wait times and it's also about fit too you know not every counselor has knowledge about brain injury or chronic illness and so it really helps to find that right fit but yeah I did find that and I found that very helpful that's amazing you've you've just done so much Alex and and you just haven't given up you know you've just been such a great advocate for your own treatment, for your own health, for your own well-being. And I commend you for that. Through that journey, you've learned so much and you continue to do so. What's next for you? I mean, you know, are you sharing your knowledge? Are you, do you belong to any groups where you can, you can help others with your learnings? What, what's, what's next for you? So, I mean, what's next is to return to work. So I'm hoping that that will be successful. I putting in supports in place and, you know, ahead of time. So I expect that that will, will go okay. I've been visiting back things that I couldn't do very early on. So hobbies, for example, filmmaking. So I'm picking back, you know, projects that I had to put, put on the side for a time and I'm, I'm starting to get back into it slowly. And so I'm really excited about that. In terms of helping, I mean, this is something that I really, I do want to be able to do that. And I think for me, as I said, the reason why I was able to advocate for myself is because it's not from any practitioner in particular. It was actually the people that had gone through this before me, you know, whether that's a documentary or people I connected with uh, different uh, Facebook groups of people that were going through a similar process. I was able to learn. I had so many wonderful people reaching out to me once, you know, I had a name for what what I was dealing with that reached out to me and provided advice, you know, all over Canada to people. And they were able to walk through things with me in a practical way, provide advice. Um, It's just so valuable. And so I have tried to do that. I do provide that. I've had people reach out to me And I've been able to provide them advice in terms of what I've learned. 
I remember I did try to start an Instagram account (laughs) and that's still in the beginning stages, but I really wanted to map out what, to make it clear a path, you know, of breadcrumbs Mm -hmm. in terms of, okay, this is what I've learned and this is what I tried and here's some resources because when you're going through it and you're trying to research all of this stuff yourself, it is such a burden. So to have some sort of roadmap, I would love to, you know, develop that in some way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's not clear to me. I, I would love to help in, in other ways. And Well, I think you already are, Alex. You know, I mean, you're, you're, you're a voice right now for those who can't speak for themselves. And that holds a lot of value. So just by sharing your story today is giving the same opportunity you had to all these other individuals who, who will be listening to the podcast. So you already are doing that. So thank you so much. That's great. I hope it does help somebody. And I would love to continue the conversation, you know, and see how we can work together and, and maybe, maybe develop that map or that, that pathway for, for others or at least connect you with individuals who, who can work with you on that because it is well needed. You know, um, as I mentioned before, Alex, your, your story is, is one of resiliency and determination and, you know, working in brain injury for, for decades myself, that's one thing that I have realized with individuals with a brain injury, whether it's, it's acquired or traumatic, you know, there is, there is an amazing amount of resiliency and determination to, to get better. And, um, you know, the current status quo is not acceptable. We need to do better as a community, as a society, and help each other out when we can and where we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely community, you know, and it's just, you can feel so alone when you're going through something like this. And it's not something that anybody should feel alone in. So having that sense of community and reaching out to people and also figuring out, you know, there are things that we can do with each other and for each other in, in in healing. But I've also thought about, you know, how do you impact change on a wider level in terms of policy and, you know, systems? Like, I don't have an answer for that right now. But I I think when, you know, anybody that's gone through this, it really becomes apparent what the gaps are um, Mm -hmm. when you're falling through them. (laughs) So yeah, it is a question as to what, what can be done. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what the future brings for you, Alex. Thank you so much for your time today and for being a guest on the Brain Mastery Podcast. It's been a true pleasure speaking with you as always. And I look forward to to future conversations. And I wish you all the best in your journey to health. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on this. It's been great. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery Podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. 
If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the BEARS platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. A training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neuro rehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.